Here we are. 2021's come to an end and 2022 is looming right around the corner. Scott and I have brought together a couple of our gaming mates for a discussion on our personal gaming highlights of 2021 and the things we're looking forward to in 2022. So before we get started, let me introduce our two guests that we have for us for you tonight. Uh, first, we have from Bud's RPG Review and Bud's Zine Review is Bud. <laughs> Bud is the man behind the hands of some of the internet's best video reviews and operator of these two YouTube channels. Bud, say hi to everybody. Hey to everybody. Oh, <laughs> well done. I said hi to everybody. I know. That was there's, great. There's the voice everyone knows. Yes. All right. Do you next. want me to go full, full ASMR here or just normal? Uh, let's, let's, <laughs> let's keep it normal for the listeners. Uh, okay, then. Okay. Uh, next, uh, our other our other guest for this show is going to be from the reviews from Relay and unboxing in the Nook. It's Pookie. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Pookie publishes loads of reviews every month, and while sipping tea, he entertains the masses with his unboxing in the Nook YouTube channel. Pookie, floor is yours. A uh, good evening, and you'll be glad to know that I am equipped with a nice hot cup of tea. Pookie's never without his cup of tea. Uh, almost never. <laughs> okay, almost <laughs> never. <laughs> I was waiting for that. All right, and while he doesn't need any introductions, I don't want him to feel left out. He's the other half of Titter Pigs. Scott! Yay! This is the sound of my voice. And back again and looking forward to the, uh, the, the, the potential rumble in the jungle. I don't know. I can't think of anything better for this. But, but looking forward to seeing the, um, the opinions and everything that comes from both Bud and Pookie. I would suggest perhaps a role-playing rumpus. As long as it's not diceless. Moving on. Go oh, ahead, Keith. yeah, we're going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yes, I'm Keith. I'm going to be the moderator for our little uh, circus. I mean, cat herding. I mean, discussion. Uh, so don't worry, but I'm going to be an active participant in this discussion as well. Uh, this will be a two-part series. This is part one uh, in which we're going to count down our top three games uh, that we've enjoyed in 2021. Uh, the second part will be a what we're looking forward to in 2022, but that's going to be for another episode. Uh, before we get started, though, uh, the, the order in which we're all going to kind of talk in this discussion has been uh, randomly determined. We know the order, so you'll kind of figure it out as we get started. Uh, we're going to start with our number three choice, and then we're going to work up to our number one pick of 2021. And the last thing I'd like to mention uh, before we do get started is you can probably expect a little bit of passionate discussion from each of the participants on the games that are that are being slung around because, well, we're all gamers, readers, reviewers, and we're all passionate about the games that we like. So 
Uh, Scott, anything you want to add before we get started? Not really. I mean, other than the fact, just a, a, a big thank you for Bud and Pookie to join us on here. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, excited to have both of you on here, you know, providing contrasting opinions and whatnot. And I'm sure there's quite a few people who will be interested to listen to this. And and I don't think I've ever seen Bud blush in my life, but I'm trying really hard to, to see that. But it hasn't happened yet. Um, <laughs> But yes, that's that's, that's know, all. Kind of close. Yeah, that's that's all I'm going to add. Just 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 thank you, and and hopefully this this turns out as the big hot mess that I hope it turns out to be. So back to you. All right. So yeah, let's do this. Starting with you, Scott. Uh, what is your number three game for 2021? What's tickled your fancy? Um, well, this technically is something that didn't come out in 2021, and I think I'm going to just kind of start with a, quite a few of us here, I know, kind of feel like, even though a game is technically published a certain year, some of us don't feel like it's actually new until we get the physical book in our hands. And for me, that physical book was Cyberpunk Red, when the actual book came out, and it was there for me to page through uh, in its entirety. Had played several of the Cyberpunk Red games within the starter set, where it was on um, a lot of the virtual virtual online uh, cons that we did. Started a weekly, well, bi-weekly campaign here with some people locally, and, you know, and, and of course, the, the, the added influence from the video game. So, so many people were excited about this, not just people who were fans of the old cyberpunk game, uh, but it also introduced new people who were only knew about it from the video game, the video role-playing game. So, but um, it's just, it's a wonderful game as far as what it did uh, in regards to the old cyberpunk game. I feel personally that it did clean up a lot of the um, overly, <laughs> the, the, the overly advanced and focused uh, uh, combat system of the old game, highly detailed, complicated to almost a deficit or, you know, for, for most people, uh, but it really, really nailed, you know, the, the world uh, of, you know, this dystopian cyberpunk, uh, cyberpunkish game that kind of started it all, as far as I'm concerned, within the role-playing game world, and still maintains the crown. The current game is a lot easier to not only grok, you know, for lack of a better term, but also as far as introducing new people into it. You can literally just set it down and you're up and running you know, within a few minutes. Now, that's not including character creation. Character creation is a bit complicated, <laughs> but the game itself is not as far as I'm concerned. So without, I'm not going to go into a lot of details of it itself, but, but for me and the people that I played with, uh, it, it, is, it has been a blast to, to play this year. And it has inspired some of my friends to create their own works within Cyberpunk. So if a game does that to anybody, I think it's, you know, worthy of the, you know, of the title of, you know, my favorite game of 2021 or one of them. All right. That's that's fair. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So Pookie, Bud, have either of you guys played it? Read it? I, I had a chance to, a chance to play it because um, uh, actually Scott ran uh, an adventure for us. Um, and I did my painted trick of picking up a dead body and using it as a shield. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of fun. Um, you know, basically action orientated. Um, didn't get a lot into the sort of like the, sort of the technical aspects of the setting with the net running and that sort of thing. Yeah, See, they... I've not played Cyberpunk since back in the day. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and, and if I'm honest, Cyberpunk-esque things are not really my bag. Mm -hmm. But I've heard good things about it. 
Yeah, I kind of fall in the same school with Bud. Cyberpunk, I like some aspects of it, but it, mm-hmm. it's not something I normally gravitate towards normally. But I have a question, though, for Scott. When the game first published, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of folks felt it was, I don't want to say half-baked, because uh, there was a lot of, <laughs> don't roll your eyes at me, that there was a lot of uh, issues, mechanical issues with the game. Is that Were those online rumblings that I saw misplaced? Mm. With with the new version is what you're asking. Yeah, yeah, um, yes, absolutely. The new version. Like, was there was there a bunch of errata? Was there? Well, yes, uh, and I don't I don't think it's really with the mechanics of the game. There was more okay. more of a um, I guess from an editing perspective, uh, some things were misplaced. Some things were put in the wrong. Some tables were were you know placed in the wrong categories. You know, a zero one was placed where a zero five should have been. Th- things such as that. But it's what it did was it um, it didn't really complicate it. Uh, it didn't break the game, so to speak. Now, okay. now if there's any other rumblings besides that, I think that's more of a personal level. Uh, a lot of the rumblings that I heard was from the old school cyberpunk people who just love that ridiculous amount of crunch uh, that's involved in the game. And you get that from a lot of games that when they they make it more easy to access, accessible. And a lot of that accessibility means cleaning up, tightening up the rules, and maybe throwing some of it away to make it more enjoyable for a broader audience, not just the people who, you know, love this, this you know, giant amount of tables and a bunch of crunch and this huge detail to realism that, that can occur in, in, in a lot of the older games. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it, it's... Okay, so I, I guess maybe then what I, what I read was probably related to the errata for the editing errata and what have you. Well, so, and I and I maybe mistook what it was for. Well, or to, related to to be fair, you know, our our, our Talsorian games does kind of have a bit of a uh, uh, an issue with a, a lot of errata coming after things being published. But th- that's for a different podcast. <laughs> Am I right in assuming that, and I may be wrong about this, that you had to pay for the quick start? It was a box starter set. I don't know if there was a quick start though that you could like you know like something you you could download or or get from a drive through or something. I, I remember someone saying that the, you had to buy the, the quick start rules. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the quick start. I know they had the jump start, which I believe they were calling their entry level box set, their beginner starter set, which came so out before a, oh, the okay. book did. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing I think people were kind of disappointed, certainly with that jump start or quick start set, was it just didn't give you all of the options that people wanted. Right. And once again, it's not, it, it is a great introduction. But I think if I had to, you know, throw a little bit of negative aspect to it is, is when the full rules came out, it literally made their jump start uh, unusable because there were a bunch of changes between the jump start and the core rulebook. Okay, so maybe if, that's if, what I picked up on, and that could be, and that could be. I mean, it, it it's still a great way to get to get into the into the uh, spirit of the game, uh, but you are going to be doing a few things differently that you did in the quick start that you are going to do in the core now. Artelsorian, what they did was there was a bunch of materials that was provided uh, for the quick start, quick start that was free that you can download that they've updated for free uh, with the core rules. So it's 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 widely it's it's widely supported by them and they do an excellent job of that. But it's just there, there's a lot of wannabe you know cyberpunk games out there. But this this is the you know the end all the end all as far you know in my opinion. So there we go. Okay, awesome. Anybody got anything else they want to add before we move on? All right, next up, Pookie, what's your number three for, for this year? My number three is Desert Moon of Karth by Joel Hines, which is a sandbox adventure for D20 
the Mothership sci-fi horror role-playing game. And it's radically different to what you would expect from a Mothership uh, scenario, uh, which you normally would expect some kind of one-shot or a, sort of like a horror scenario, a bit like Alien. This is a space western, sort of like influenced by things like Firefly and Dune. And it takes place, essentially, it's a sandbox on a sand world that is sort of cut off because there's a, a ring of orbital satellites around it which destroy all incoming and outgoing flying objects. And you can only get access it via a rickety orbital elevator. Um, and then once you get down on the planet, it's really just sort of like a location, a location sort of like 10 locations uh, of interesting places and factions and NPCs and tables, um, which you can use to create a sandbox a series of adventures in reaction to what the players want to do. And it packs this all into 52 pages. Um, so you've got a complete campaign there in, you know, in sort of like, you know, uh, you know, your Wild West sci-fi action style. But if you don't want to run it for Mothership, really versatile. So you can take away and drop it into, into the Star Wars universe or run it using the Cepheus Deluxe mechanics. And, and the other thing about it I like is that it marks something different uh, coming out of ZineQuest on Kickstarter. Because, you know, you, the fanzines traditionally are sort of like, like anthologies of content. This is a really focused content, you know, just one setting in a lengthy fanzine. I looked at it. Um, I've given it a, a quick skim. Uh, I can tell you, I mean, you, you four or you three know it's the influences of the game and the style of it aren't, aren't Keats' cup of tea. Spaghetti Westerns and its influences of like the Firefly movie and TV show. Yes, Scott. Um, I think the audience would like to know, why do you hate fun, Keith? Anyways, go on. <laughs> Keith doesn't hate fun. I think we have to go back to episode one <laughs> to find out can why. We take a, can we take a vote on that? We can take a vote. <laughs> I think Keith's very, very defined in the funny he likes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Keith, Keith has... kind of looking out of room through a keyhole kind of thing. Have fun. I have my very specifics that I like. I do branch out from time to time. And let, let's be fair. I, I Last year, this year, I, I don't know. Pandemics all run together at this point. I did play Firefly and I did play a couple of uh, sci-fi games, but I will give credit where credit's due. I, I think the uniqueness of Desert Moon of Karth is, is pretty cool. I, I like its concept. Uh, I like its approachability because it's from Mothership or you know, you can put it with something like Cepheus or whatever, or any other kind of generic sci-fi engine. So its adaptability is good. Keys cup of tea, not so much. See, I, I, I was thinking when if someone told me that that was a campaign for Star Wars, I would believe them. By the sound of it, it doesn't sound like it fits with with what Mothership does on the on the face of it, which is essentially space horror. It sounds it sounds like something completely different, and maybe that's why you enjoyed it as much as you did. I'll I'll tack onto that real quick, and also agree with you, bud, that it does. It, it what it what it what it does is I think it's it's ex but in my opinion, uh, it's expanded the um, you know what mothership can be or what it could be. It it does remove a lot of the uh, the, the cosmic horror aspects that so many other mothership uh, adventures are known for, even some of the little mini campaigns such as this. But I think what it's done is it's it's opened that up to a lot of people who necessarily wouldn't want to try the mothership mechanics because they're not a big fan of horror. Uh, so with this making it you know more of the spaghetti western you know sci-fi game that may be more up someone's alley and and mingle in a, a little bit of um, you know for those who are familiar with like the No Man's Sky video game these aliens in here are no less 
odd or weird than a lot of the, um, the, the, the horrific aspects of mothership. But the, the things that's just missing is they're not, you know, they're not there to eat your soul. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're there to be, you know, foils for the campaign, but they're not cosmically horror inducing aspects of, uh, of some other reality, like a lot of the other mothership is. But, and I kind of feel like that maybe that's where mothership might be going with its new uh, Kickstarter and, and to a certain degree, it's branch making it more universal. But that's just my observation. Pookie. Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd come back on what, what, what uh, Scott was saying there. And essentially that, that, that there is actually an element of horror there, but it's, it's creepy horror uh, and it's weird horror, but it's, it's sort of in the background. You've really got to go delve deep into it to find it. It's not essentially in your face as it normally is in Mothership, where the horror comes after you because typically it's a one shot. I'd be willing to play it, um, but I, I kind of have to agree with Bud. I mean, when you pitch it, like you give that little elevator pitch, it sounds like Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> little sand world and, you know, it's, it's got this kind of spaghetti Western thing going. I would have to agree with Bud. Um, it, undoubtedly, it, it wears its influences um, essentially, you know, on its sleeve. Poncho. Sure. On its poncho. On its poncho, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will I will get around to reading it before 12th edition Mothership comes out. <laughs> Speaking of uh, reading it before 12th edition Mothership, Bud, what is your number three game for this year? Right. Be- before I go into my number three, I have a huge caveat here because my push this year was not to read as, read as much as I normally would. Instead of six books, I've only done three. Um, my push this year was to finish off Call of Cthulhu because I've been doing a series on my channel, which took up the first half of the year. So it's only now where I'm getting to the point where I can read more things without it kind of getting in the way of Call of Cthulhu. So, so my, it, something I read recently and something I backed on Kickstarter, and it's uh, The Desanction by Paul Baldowski and made by All Rolled Up. Um, I don't think I've ever quite seen a game like it. Some people have said it's like it's almost like Delta Green in the Tudor age. Others have said it's it's a bit like Call of Cthulhu. It, it's not. It's quite not quite like a, any of them, right? To be honest, because ultimately, in in um, in the desanction, you start off as criminals, and you've got like minor magical powers, and you you're doing it for the queen, and the supposed good guys, like the kind of church, are the bad guys who were trying to kill the queen. And I mean, the whole the whole package was nice. I mean, I did have I did have my problems with it, which a lot of other people had the same problems. And uh, the book was beautiful. Um, not not a huge fan of the art, as I've said on me, but I, but I understood why it was done the way it was done. But I just think as a setting, it was really well researched, which is not surprising given Paul Baldowski is is a history buff. It was really well researched. It really felt like it could be part of the setting rather than completely unbelievable. I mean, given how crazy John D was. It, it felt like it could be doable and kind of, it, it really straddles real history with cod history really well. Yeah. So that, that's my number three pick. Pookie, by all means, you're the guest here. You go, you go, go first. No, I, I was impressed by this as well. I mean, essentially uh, I described it as um, Dr. John D's uh, dirty half dozen, as in, you know, you know, the, the dirty dozen movie, because essentially all the player characters are disposable and they really come from all walks of life. Um, so yeah, you can have you know a playwright accompanied by a gong scourer um, investigating mysteries and knowing you know very little about what they're encountering, and uh, armed with almost infinitesimally small magic um, that they've been taught, uh, knowing that if they screw up, you know they're going to be you know pressed or hanged or 
you know, beheaded. It's another interesting thing to note is the way the game has been designed, it really promotes playing as a team. Absolutely. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own. You need a team of people equipped with different different skills to be able to get anywhere and to be able to complete any of the adventures. And it's really cleverly by design done. And you don't see that that often, I don't think. I absolutely wholeheartedly concur with that. I mean, because if, yeah. if you can't build the team, get the different skill sets aligned, you're, you're not going to succeed. Playing as a criminal that is given a last reprieve before the hangman's noose, um, if you don't succeed, well, guess where you're going to go? You're going to go right back to jail. I mean, or you could perish <laughs> as, as a result of the mission. I don't think I have much to add that has been said already, but one of the, one of the thing that one of the things that I find special about it, and like a lot of games like this, is it's such a small book, but what it provides is immense. Like like Bud had mentioned, it just there's a there's it's it's amazing sometimes when I see authors like this just provide a, a wealth of material in a small little package, whereas someone else can produce an 800 page book, and it just things just get lost. Not that specific 800-page book. I'm talking generally speaking, Pookie, but uh, things can just get lost. And But the other thing is, is like also once again, like Bud had mentioned, it's just that period of time. Um, I'm not well-versed in it, but if you look up that period, if you look up John D, there's going to be a wealth of information that you can, you know, ha- have these adventures, you can create your own on top of it being supported as it, as it has been by Paul. Um, in you know, in the short amount of time after the book came out, there's been you know a, a, a wonderful amount of adventures. Things have been that have been provided. They're they're, they're all great. It, it's and I think it could be one of those where it's fulfilling. You can have a short-term campaign and come to a conclusion with it and move on and feel like that you've had a wonderful time. It's something that doesn't need to occupy two years of your gaming time in order to feel like you've got it. You know, this this one you could you can probably have eight, nine, 12 session campaign and come to a conclusion and go, that was fantastic. And then you have that wonderful game memory to last you uh, through, you know, through your lifetime. So it's, it's just, it's just a fun. And, you know, this is coming from someone who was absolutely 100% not an Anglophile. So moving on. Um, That's an absolute (laughs) lie, Scott. (laughs) One other thing about, about the desanction as well is it, it makes the point. If you tell anyone who's going to believe you anyway, if you fail, you're more than likely dead or are going to be dead soon. And if you pass, someone else gets all the credit if you, if you succeed. And I love that kind of idea of, yeah, you're given a second chance, but it's not, it's not a real second chance. Bringing it back around to what you said, you know, people have claimed it's, you know, it's kind of like this game or kind of like that game. It's, it's kind of like nothing else. It's, it really is a game unto itself. Like mechanically, it's simple, little to no learning curve to play. It's very approachable, especially if you love history or love that particular period of history. And you can get right into it. It's not Call of Cthulhu in the Tudor time. It's not Delta Green. It's not Delta Green in the Tudor time. It's not Trail of Cthulhu in the Del- you know in the Tudor time. It's not anything else. You know specifically, it's its own thing. Um, uh, it's a wonderful little game. Yeah, I mean, I I mean the newest. Uh, I- possibly genre I would possibly opposite in saying it's in its horror I mean it's dealing with uh, folk horror and possibly sort of like the the horror that De- an author like Dennis Wheatley was writing about but that's put put um, against a framework of the religious schism of the period right and also um you know the, the social differences as well and that's they're they're really nice that's nicely captured in the scenarios yeah for sure oh, I agree Oh, I guess it's my turn for my number three. If you say tune, I'm going to be really disappointed. <laughs> no, I, so, I, I'm thinking something. 
not to interrupt you, Keith, but maybe something else that starts with T. But it, it, sorry, go on. Well, as as Scott alluded to, it's uh, Pookie, it's not T. And no, I wouldn't like any right now. And my number three for 2021 is Old School Essentials, uh, the advanced version of the game by Necrotic Gnome. For me, this was, I, at heart, I'm an old school gamer. I grew up with early editions of D&D. I started with Frank Menser's Red Box set. I got it for Christmas in like 1983, 84. My memory slips, you know, fails me from time to time because I'm getting old. You know, and I go in and out of that gaming era, you know, with different rule sets uh, throughout the years, the last decade or so. But I always come back to it. But when I got my hands on the basic version of Old School Essentials, I fell in love with it. Scott's grinning at me. Why are you grinning at me, Scott? And then uh, I fell in love with it. It was, to me, it was the best version of D&D that I grew up with. And now obviously it's not uh, Menser's series of D&D. It's the Moldvay Cook version, uh, which is um, equally as good, if not better in a lot of ways. But again, it's going to depend who you ask. And I found this version of it to be the best presentation of it. It's clean. It's sleek. It puts all the information on two-page spreads. It's it's wonderful to, to flip through. It's easy to use when you're running it or playing it. That being said, when they launched the Kickstarter for the advanced version, which incorporated some of the previous advanced books into the uh, into the basic version and collated it all into a two book set. I backed that and then it delivered uh, March or April. I don't know. Everything's running together these days. Uh, and it's, it's, it's beautifully done. Uh, the two book set is fantastic. I, I think moving forward, I, I don't think anything's going to top it in the, in the OSR for me. It's going to be my go-to from this point forward. Now I know Scott's got it and run yeah. it and yep. played using it. And I know Pookie has as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, but have you used old school essentials? Well, well, I'll, I'll tell you where I stand on on this. Is I never played D and D back in the day. Like most of the people here, D and D wasn't my first game. RuneQuest was my first game, and then when I first played D and D, I couldn't stand it. And then my the next time I looked at anything Dungeons and Dragons related was A D and D Second Edition, which I then just murdered for years. You know, I ran a 14 year campaign. So the kind of the whole old school revival thing, or while I understand the reason for it, it doesn't grab me like it seems to grab other players. I was more excited for RuneQuest Glorantha than I was for anything kind of OSR related. So when I, I, I mean, you know, in conventions and things like that, I see people offering this and it as a game, it never kind of grabs me because I know it's, it's kind of a refined D and D essentially, isn't it? Yeah. 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 A refined BD and D, not not a refined fifth edition D and D. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So so it doesn't have the grab for me that it does for those people who grew up on D and D. And the advanced version had elements from AD and D, from what I believe. Yes. Is this right? Yes. That is so correct. as someone who who yeah. absolutely battered an AD and D campaign for years, for me it has nothing more to offer. I'd rather try other other games from that point. So that so each time one of the, the old school essentials have come across, it's never been something I've been that interested in. But I understand the reason and that people love it because they have that kind of hankering to back in the day when they started. I can appreciate it. For me, it's a nostalgia thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have a rule cyclopedia yeah. and this it's very reminiscent of rule cyclopedia uh, in its kind of color tones, but it's so much... The presentation is far better. Cleaner. Oh, absolutely. Far cleaner, better all around. Mm-hmm. Even even handier, yeah. given oh. its size. Yeah. 
only it's a digest size book. I think the, the, the one thing great about it is once you've got it, is that it makes so much other gaming content instantly accessible. So, so for example, we have been recently, we played a scenario from, uh, I think it's like White Dwarf 14 or something like that, called The Lich White, okay? And it's a classic White Dwarf scenario from 1988, 1979, something like that. And we just slotted it straight in. It felt, you know, as if we'd never been away, as it were. And it really, really, you know, itched that nostalgic, uh, you know, itch, you know, scratched it. I, I think one of the biggest draws to it, at least for me, is I, I'm not necessarily the same aspect of like what bud did my my general um introduction was through the basic D D sets but never really spent as much time with it as we did with AD and I mean and and essentially worshiping at the fate at the feet of second edition uh when when that came out for for quite some time and so and we never really ventured back to basic for you know I'm just going to call it basic for uh, you know, just keep it simple, but never going back to that version of D&D, even as the years went on, you know, as it went to 3.5 and, you know, 4 and, and all the rest, <clears throat> because not necessarily because we, we didn't want to play it. It was just another jumble of rules to just kind of, you know, try to flip through to, to organize these games. And it was just easier to play things that were, were recent and a lot more accessible. When OSC came out, I, I, I kind of equate it to you're getting that wonderful classic car, that 57 Chevy that's just beautiful on the outside, and inside is a modern engine, air conditioning, um, you know, a wonderful sound system. It's just the inside of Old School Essentials is just so much easier to access the rules, so much easier to introduce other people to this, this style of gaming without having to go through the mess of a lot of the, uh, psych, you know, the, the rules cyclopedia or the older books. And let's, let's be honest, it's another way to enjoy these old adventures without spending, you know, 500 fucking dollars on a basic red box. Uh, <laughs> you know, no or one... having to do the legwork to convert them. Right. So it, it's, it's, yeah. I think it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag where it, it allows people who enjoyed it to go back to it easier but then also introduce people who've never played the, this old school style of game and not hand them a stack of books that they're never going to want to read anyways. Here's a nice, neat manual that you can flip through and understand it without you know, going back and forth through a bunch of rules that just don't make sense. So it just cut off a lot of the fat. Yeah, and I mean, the great thing about those rules is the options. Because when you come to it, uh, if you don't want to use DACO to hit armor class zero, it gives you the option to use ascending armor class, and it does this again, so that you can run it with a certain nod to the ease of right. A more modern it, it allowed heathens and non-heathens to come together and play the same game. <laughs> um. <laughs> Why would you want to use that code? I mean, even back in the day, I hated that. Um, well, I mean, the thing is, Keith is in the, in the middle of running us through B two right. Keep on the Borderlands. In a complete nostalgia fest. I am, you, and yes, much. I still hate Thacko. <laughs> okay, uh, we, but we, 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 we all voted on it and said, let's go Thacko because let's do the whole nostalgia trip, the whole thing. Right. Okay, normally we wouldn't, we, we, you wouldn't do that. But again, let's do it just one more time to see how bad it is. And okay, it's mm. not intuitive. Okay, it doesn't make any sense now. However you feel like, you feel, feel about it, okay? Rolling ascending armor class is just well, it's obviously easier, but it's there if people want to use it. And for in this instance, we did. Would I use that on an ongoing basis? 
Would I do it I, again I using it? No. It's not even Thacko. It's, it's Thakza or Thak Zero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let, let's let's be honest, though. At the end of the day, regardless how horrible it is, at least you are rolling dice. So, Okay. Oof. That's fair. That's fair. Shots fired. Um, so, so, yeah. I, go ahead, Keith. No, I was just going to say, yeah, that's... The, I love it. It's, you know, you guys have hit on some good stuff. It, it brings a little bit of the advanced, uh, the first edition AD&D vibe into it. Because um, I played the living shit out of AD&D second edition. And then went on to three, avoided four, went on to five, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't, as a kid, I never, or as a teen and then went off into adulthood, I didn't go back uh, until you know, the last decade or so. And having tried a bunch of these retro clones, I found my pinnacle. I thought I found some other ones that were really good and they're really good, but this is like right up there. It's, this is the top. And one last thing as an actual book itself, as the two pair books, it's actually charming. It's got its own charm on as a physical product. Yeah, I concur. So, so you agree that Don Henley is wrong. You can't go back. We can go back and we're going to move on moving forward. <laughs> All right. So this, unless that's, anybody's got anything to add to that, that, that's my one joke. So I've already wasted it. So. <clears throat> All right. Scott shot his wad. He's got his one joke out of the way. All right, moving on. And we're going to come back around full circle to Scott. Mm-hmm. So Scott, what is your number two pick for this year? Um, well, my number two pick is something that I haven't read extensively yet, but I did get to play in to the completion of the campaign, and that is uh, Chaosium's Children of Fear. Uh, I believe was penned by uh, Lynn Willis, if I'm not mistaken, with, with the Lynn, help of Lynn what? Lynn Hardy? Lynn Hardy, yes. Sorry, I'm getting confused, but I was invited to play in the game by, uh, uh, some of you may know him, Tristan uh, Narbara, right? I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, Tristan. Um, you don't curse me out in Japanese if I'm not. Um, but he invited me to play in, in, in that campaign, uh, just over a year ago. And I had during the middle of the campaign, I received the book. Uh, it's still in the shrink wrap, but it's one of those that now that we've completed it, I'm going to go ahead and dive into it. But just, this is more of the experience of a player, uh, within, within the, uh, this game. I mean, it, it's, it is a Call of Cthulhu. Uh, game, so it's going to have a lot of the Call of Cthulhu tropes, but the big thing about it is is where it takes place, and that's in the areas of China, uh, Tibet, and, and a, a lot of that areas during this time, which uh, has a very in-depth focus on what things were like there. So, whereas a lot of Call of Cthulhu games take place in, in a place that's familiar, and then of course the disconcerting things are the things that are happening to you with what's happening within the you know the mythos or or the uh, aspects of horror and fear this you're a fish out of water not just within that but also where you're at because just the the 1920s areas within within China India Tibet and all that it's almost like an alien land itself and so you're you're never comfortable you're always kind of trying to find your footing as you're as you're dealing with the mythos aspect and the cultural aspects as you are almost taking this wonderful um, historical tour of all of that. You're it, it, it's almost disguised as like those games that we played when we were kids, like um, like uh, you know the Oregon Trail, where it's like you're learning stuff, but you're have but you're playing a game. 
came away from this with a with a wonderful respect for the history of that time and also with what was going on in the world then that a lot of people wouldn't even know uh, if it, or wouldn't even consider to look up if there wasn't the you know the amount of research that was done by uh, by Lynn Hardy within this game and it was just an absolute joy and you know I can say that on top of it it's it's done I got to complete a campaign I don't think I've actually done that in 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 a very long time um, we've lost a few people along the way but um, but yeah it's it's it, there's a lot of and I really couldn't tell you without reading it how much of it was aspects of the cultural side of it you know the mysticism and whatnot is very very focused on the mysticism at the time but how much of that is you know actually historical reference references to that or some of it slightly twisted within the uh, Cthulhu-esque aspects of it but uh, either way at least for my character that I was playing it was just wonderful to be constantly out of my depth in, in everything and in, in whatever it was doing and so it just had an absolute blast. I highly recommend it. Uh, may not be necessarily for everyone, uh, but uh, it, it is, in, in my opinion, you know, for the length of it, one of the best Call of, Call of Cthulhu campaigns that I've read or got to play in. So fantastic! I th I think we all own it. Yeah, yeah, I've not read it yet, but I do yeah. own it. <laughs> I, 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 unfortunately, no. I, I, I literally took mine out of shrink two days ago, three days ago. So um, no, I haven't read mine, but I am looking forward to it. I know there's a lot of work that went into it, a lot of research. Uh, and I know she's, uh, I know Lynn's very, very proud of the work she put into it. And I've heard nothing but good things about it. And I know Tristan loved running that game for you guys. So he was, he talks about it regularly when we're online. So yeah, I, I think if, if there was one kind of, you know, one thing that may be a deterrent for, you know, some keepers, it's just the the attention to detail. It, it's one of those where, you know, a lot of these, the, the historical aspects are not sidebars. They're things that you really should be applying to the game to make it as culturally, culturally significant within what you're playing within and not just hand wave it, you know, to get to the nitty gritty aspect of, you know, the, the Cthulhu side of things. Um, it, it's definitely something that you kind of want it to be an intentional slow burn, not because of the game itself, but because of the, the historical aspects that you're feeding the players and what you're discovering as you're doing that. So that's fair. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to keep that in mind. Cause that is, that is one I want to read and run in the near future. Okay. Y'all don't hold me to that. <laughs> Too late. It's recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! Yeah, I've got that in my diary now. Um, when is that? Twenty twenty never. I don't know. I, I, I think. Um, I think what's interesting about about the fact that Tristan running for you is that he lives in Japan and speaks Japanese, and that probably lent a lot towards it. Mm -hmm. Him being in, like embedded in Asia, right? And I'm being fluent in an Asian language. It probably it probably helped. The campaign along oh i i without question i mean tristan is you know probably one of the more well-traveled people i know where he's you know been throughout his his life and currently where, where he's from and it helps i mean it's it definitely helps it's not it's not something that if you've never been there it's not something that you need to worry about because it's so well researched but it does help like like if i was running a, a game for you at disneyland uh, because, uh, <laughs> be, you know, because of the years I've spent there, I can run that like the back of my hand and that wouldn't be a problem. Um, and, 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 you know, no, um, I'm not going to run a game set at Disneyland. 
no, I was going to ask you, could you not inflict such a horror upon us? <laughs> Thanks. Fair enough. Well, Better watch out, because Disney will be sending the lawyers after this podcast. You know they will. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. All right, all right so uh, next up is Pookie. What's your number two? My number two is also a Call of Duty um, title. Um, it is the... Uh, the Eldritch New England Holiday Collection from Golden Goblin Press. And this um, is a radically different take upon the mythos. Uh, also New England, essentially Lovecraft Country, in that you play children. Now, the interesting thing is that there are scenarios out there in which in Call of Cthulhu, like the Dare, um, typically Halloween scenarios where you play children um, or teenagers. In this one, it's set in the 1920s. You are exposed to the mythos. Not necessarily, a, a, I would say, um, a totally horrific in-your-face kind of mythos. It's weird and it's creepy. And over the course of four holidays, the four scenarios in the book, um, you join your cousins um, at family gatherings in Dunwich and Arkham um, and Innsmouth uh, and, and Kingsport uh, and have weird adventures, um, essentially, whilst the, sort of like the adults are sort of like are off-camera. And it's a really interesting way of looking at the mythos sort of like from almost from looking at it upwards rather than for, as children, rather than sort of like as downwards as adults, if you see what I mean. Um, it's completely sort of like a new perspective. Um, and it, eventually, essentially, the, the, the pre-generated characters after the campaign, it's, it's suggested that they go on and, and sort of like face the mythos and deal with bigger threats. But here it's their first experiences. I mean, for example, there's a fantastic... Um, a scenario in Kingsport where you know they, they you're um you get sucked they get sucked into sort of like a, a version of the dreamlands uh, and have Christmas adventures because it's all set at Christmas um but at the same time they're getting involved in family affairs as well and that adds quite a lot of sort of like um, good opportunities for role playing so I don't own that collection but how and but I have played I've read and run the original Christmas scenario. How how different is this new version of it from the original? I can't say because I haven't seen the I'm, I'm, I've not looked at the original in okay. a very long time because obviously it came, it came out in a monograph sort of like um, over yeah. a decade ago. I loved uh, I love the original. Um, so, yeah, it's really rich and deep and such a good opportunity for role playing that you don't always that you don't always necessarily get in a call call of Duty snow as written okay. um, in the setup because it's personal uh, and it's the other thing that what um, it's the one thing that I've never seen in a call of Cthulhu anthology is a sense of warmth to the book and the setup um, you know it is about family it is about your friends and although it's dangerous and it's not deadly as such. And it's just, just, just. I think I just really enjoyed it. It was different. It was interesting. And as as a campaign, it would really, as I say, make for uh, a, a radically different take upon the mythos. I mean, the only warmth you normally feel in the Call of Cthulhu campaigns when you set the building on fire, isn't it? <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> yeah, and, and Delta Green, to be fair. Yeah, both. I, Burn I'm it not down. As- I'm not as familiar with it as Pookie is because, you know, he's read through it, but I've, I've touched on it. I did a kind of a, you know, on my silly little YouTube channel, this kind of pull from the shelf, and I wanted to focus on that and just kind of did a, did a flip through of it. 
it's it's i mean just just even just flipping through it not going in detail you you see a lot of the aspects that you've touched on pookie and it just it, it looks like it would be just a blast it'd be one of those where if you had if you actually had is it six total i believe it's six yeah it, six total and, and i think that's the one problem with it is that it right. does demand six players the other nice thing about it is the illustrations it, the, the illustrations in there are really fantastic and they do impart mm -hmm. that sense of family and togetherness and warmth. well the one way they i believe they suggested or one one that i saw it would be wonderful if you actually had six people six friends that you could get together mm -hmm. around these actual holidays to play through this scenario and then once the year is done you, you you've completed them in the same kind of realm and aspect of what they've experienced as children and that would be an, that would be fun that would be something to might be difficult to tackle but if if people are able to do that mm -hmm. Uh, it's something to to definitely set up and look forward to. You always have this. Oh God, it's almost uh, Halloween, so now it's time to do the Call of Cthulhu one. Or it's almost Christmas. We're moving on to the next chapter and whatnot. But if you're going to do it properly, you do it live in the actual locations. Though I don't know how you're going to get well, twins with these days. Well, I mean, days. we'll just we'll just put it on your credit card, Pookie, because you know that's not not a not a cheap trip for for six people to meet specifically in the, in those areas. Nope. So we have it on, on record. If Pookie's buying, Keith's flying. Let's go. Excellent. I'll, I'll start searching for an Airbnb awesome. in Innsmouth now. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to stay in Innsmouth. <laughs> Weirdly. <laughs> I'm with Bud. Well, technically, I think that might be a, I think that might be a C B and B. I think Pookie's on to something there. That's you your one, right. Pookie. That's your one. You've got a warning. Oh. <laughs> um, but, oh boy. But All yeah, right. But, um mm -hmm. Bud, what is your number two for this year? My number two for this year is the RuneQuest starter set. It's, I only actually finished putting together my review of it today, but I've not filmed it yet. So a, a lot of it's quite fresh in my memory. I remember th thinking when I was reading it, I wish we'd had this back in the day when I was learning to play it because we, we I mean, I'm surprised we were that stupid. I'm surprised we made sense of RuneQuest, to be fair. And the approach they took was not one I thought they, they would take. I thought they would try and cram as much in as, as they can, but they editorialised the book quite well in that not putting character creation in, uh, leaving sorcery out, leaving out. I mean, they touched on like shamans, but not. they didn't go into the in-depth of, of how a shaman works. And to be fair, they're the things that, in my experience, seem to trip up longer players as much as, as you know, longer-term players as much as younger players, you know. People just come into RuneQuest. So I think the decision to leave, they've left out the right things. I don't think it was ever about trying to cram in as much as they could. I think it was about putting in what was right rather than what was complete. Um, what, one thing I found of interest, which surprised me, was in was book two. I genuinely thought opening it, they would go in, they, you'd be headfirst into the Lightbringer's quest and, you know, Gabadji and Nysalo and Arcat and the Crimson Bat. And they just touched on them which I think was a really clever decision because then that leaves those things for players to go on and, and discover, should they like it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the idea of putting in Johnstown instead is inspired because it means you'll keep on coming back to it because, as we know, Johnstown is a hub for adventurers. The scenario I just had a flick through. Um, I mean, obviously, the Rainbow Mounds are in it because you get a map of the Rainbow Mounds. Um I think the whole package is really cleverly put together. Um, and one thing I've noticed is the art. It, there's such a wide 
variety of the type of art in it. There's like certain pages, there's full pages of like a city. I mean, there's a particular one, a full color city drawn out with little people and everything. And then when it's talking about Johnstown, it's got like black and white sketches of like kind of headshots of the of the main players. And then other pages, there's like there's art down the sides, which is like stained glass in a church. And I mean, and the cover of book of book two, the Dragon Rise, it the art is just tremendous throughout it. And I've I mean, you know, people who've seen my channel before know I've been hypercritical of the of the art in the past. But I, I think they've kind of they've they've got past that now, and it's probably time I should. <gasps> Nah. Yeah. <gasps> nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> wow. But it's not me with number one pick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's only number two. I don't know what I can add. I mean, I as a as a new player to yeah to RuneQuest, I fell in love with the starter kit. It. I read the most of the core book uh, to a certain point, and then it was like reading Greek and latin smashed together with a little bit of uh mandarin and i stopped and but i got the starter kit all the pieces fell into place i just found it to be in nice concise bite-sized bits that were easy to understand in clear very clear written language god it was a dream to read one one thing to point out as well is is they make a point of saying they left out things like chariot combat i, I mean and rightly so what what beginning player needs that? Exactly. Really? Right. Yeah, you know, they just I mean, strike ranks are still something that tripped me up as a player, even having played it for so long. And when I read the way they'd reworded the rules for a new generation, it actually made it all kind of click together in my mind. There were some things like for example, skills over hundred percent. The way they explain it, it actually made it finally make sense to the point where I could tell you how it works without having to go, oh, there's a rule for that and having to look it up. Which, which is, you know, it, that's a testament to how how they've gone about the, the way they thought about writing it. They haven't just copied and pasted it from the the core from from, from the the core book. They've rewritten it in a way that new players will understand it. Which is something that that I was going to point out. I mean, like Keith, I'm relatively new to RuneQuest myself, but one thing I can touch on is is we all are familiar with starter sets, uh, you know, box sets that that provide bits of information. Some are fantastic. Some are okay written. But then there are those where it literally looks like they just went to the PDF, copied and pasted a few things into mm -hmm. a small little booklet, threw some dice in and said, here, give me 40 bucks. Uh, with really no real intention of it being a, a real introduction, just kind of like something to make a buck on and then go pay 60 bucks for the core book. This one, as you, as you said, is written with the really true intention of being a introduction to ev almost everything that that at least is the core foundation of what RuneQuest and Glorantha is, not just you know essentially an overglorified GM screen, which is a lot of lot of the uh, the poorly done starter sets can be sometimes. So, but it's just and like like a lot of the good ones, it's not one and done. It's not here's the rules and here's an adventure and good luck. You could spend quite a long time just using this material alone before ever having to go out and get the core set. And that's that's. I a think I think to add to that as well, um, old players won't have Johnstown, so they get they get Johnstown as as yeah. an entire city to to use again and again. And and the scenario is eighty odd pages long. It's 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 not a little pamphlet of a scenario. It's a full proper scenario. You get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, with the, the idea really is that the starter set appeal sh is designed to appeal to both 
um, new players and old players. And that's where that, that Johnstown setting content comes in. That's, that's, um, that's for them as much as it is for um, the new players. And the, I mean, basically the, the, the scenario booklet, it's three scenarios as well. And, you know, the, the, which are the, the two of them are new. And then the third one is um, it's basically uh, essentially a sort of an updating and, and redoing of um, a previous scenario, which the um, Rainbow Mounds, which appeared in uh, the supplement Apple Lane, um, sort of like, you know, it's a sequel of sorts. The, the older players can go in and play it and it will be sort of like... They, but it should feel new enough, yeah. You know, have... I mean, yeah, for, yeah. for my for my yeah. review of it, I didn't I didn't pick up on that. It was three scenarios because I just had to flick through it to see what you know. I, I saw some right. trolls, I, you know. I saw the rainbow mounds. I, I just assumed. I mean, I'm assuming they can be run one after another, right? Yeah. Oh, oh yes. I mean, it's and it's not just that. The three scenarios are are all different. So you have a primarily sort of like um, you have a sort of like an, an interaction in um, combat scenario in the first part. The second one. Uh, is an investigation, and then the third one, Rainbow Mounds, is essentially is the nearest thing you kind of kind of you're going to get to a dungeon yep. exploration in RuneQuest. I mean, I should point out that I have actually playtested all of three of these scenarios, and they're a lot of was fun. Was Jason Doral running them? Was you it? know they 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 yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> Only on Titter Pigs. <laughs> Hands down, it's 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 a great product. It's right. it's good for new players, old players. It's made me go buy a bunch of RuneQuest stuff. Yeah, and, and you're, you're going to get <laughs> and you're going to get three very good, very uh, articulated, very in-depth reviews from three of the people here: um, me, Bud, and Keith. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, this I'm is one Pookie has said he just, just will not else. review because I, it's not worth his time. Absolutely not at all. Yeah, <laughs> what's the point? Other people are doing it. <laughs> The thing is, as well about it as well, is it's, it's really good value for money as well. Yeah. For what yeah. you get. I, I, I think I... S- yeah. Sorry, Pookie, go ahead. Yeah. I, I mean, what I was going to say, I mean, the thing is, um, you know, what Jason has done with it, he's gone out and he's got, he's got collected a bunch of other starter sets for other games and compared them, okay? And as, as people have said, that, you know, you get somewhere, you go, right. I've got some dice and I've got a rule book and I've got a scenario. In this, you get a whole lot more. That box is packed. Yeah, you know it, it is full of content. Uh, you know, it, 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 the one thing. Okay, when I did do my review, I have done one. Is I said essentially, if you look back at the Call of Cthulhu scenario, sorry, the starter set for Call of Cthulhu, that yeah, set a new definitely. bar yeah. for um, starter set. And then the thing is, they've done it again. They've raised that bar for for starter sets with that, that request box. Because I mean, I've 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 seen some not so great. Starter sets, like for example, the, the Tales from the Loop starter set. The yeah. box is twice as twice as yeah. big and half as full. Yeah, as as you know, it, it's yeah. ridiculous the, how little you get in it. Yeah, and again, it's the same again with something like the Numenera starter set. There's a lot of content in there, but it's really just one scenario. And yes, in some cases, um, yeah, it, you know, you go, okay, you've played this scenario, go download this scenario online. That kind of doesn't, you know, you want it. Why can't I have yeah. that in my hand now? Why have I got to go and... I think I said it. I think I summed that up best in my review, kind of ending my review. I said it's it's the best twenty nine ninety nine you'll ever spend. Plus shipping. Go buy it from your friendly yeah. local uh, gaming store. You don't really have shipping. Popular. That's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... No free copies over here. Yeah. <laughs> and if, and if it, yeah. 
and you'll see so many people having got a copy and opening it and unboxing it and so on. You know, it's really proved, I think, to be a really big hit for yeah. um, Chaosium. You know, obviously, I think primarily with, obviously, an older yeah. audience. But I think, you know, um, if, if people have looked at one starter set, they'll look at another and go... Yeah. But I think I it's think designed... I think it's design yeah, makes it's it designed for an older audience as well. Yeah. 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 So it's not just for it's just not just for new players. No. It is the point, and why that's why you're seeing a lot of older mm. people buying it. And that, that's older people who already have yeah. RuneQuest content, who already have RuneQuest books. They're buying it because, well, it's RuneQuest. I'm going to buy that, but they're buying it because they know they're going to get good mm -hmm. content. You get there is good content, which you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. And and, and the other thing it should be should be we haven't mentioned, have we? Yeah. Is the maps. Oh, yeah, the maps are fantastic. Yeah. Maps in there are gorgeous. That's Matt, that's Matt Ryan. Um, even if you take all four books and you lay them face down, make a map all on the, the back. Four yeah. books basically form a pack. But you've got you've got um, fold out maps right. in there as well. Yes, and they're beautiful. They're lovely. It's so 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 detailed. And you look at them and go, oh, I wonder what that place is. Oh, where do you want to go there? And you you know, and that isn't necessarily served in the starter set because that's just extra information. But you want to go and look it up online. Yeah, did you, find, did you notice, though, the maps, the four quadrants on the back of the books, right, that make up the four quadrants of that, that Sartar map are, mm. are slightly zoomed in from the, mm. the, the fold-out yeah. version mm. of the map? Yeah. So it's, That's by design, though, isn't it? It yeah. is by design because yeah. it's a little less busy because yeah. it's, it's, it's dialed in a little bit more to the play areas in which the scenarios are set. Right. But, yeah. but it, it evokes, mm. the maps themselves evokes what it was like when you opened up that, that, that map from Greyhawk or you open up that map yeah. from Forgotten Realms and you just dialed in yeah. on these beautiful maps go, what's here? What's this? What's that? Yeah. Um, and, but it's still, you can still see it and read it. It's not, yeah. I mean, not, yep. So Keith, you have a number two to, to, I do. to speak of. And I do. What, what, what would this number two be? As so I'm, my number two for this year is going to be, it's actually a brand new book called Matrons of Mystery by Sue Savage. It's a self-published book. Uh, it's on Lulu, lulu.com. So Sue took uh, what she, the best pieces of an investigative powered by the apocalypse game called Brindlewood Bay, the best pieces of that game and gave it her own spin and took its basic core premise Gave it a very English feel, uh, inspired by English crime dramas, murder mystery shows of the 80s, the 90s, hell, even into the 2000s, some of the influences that she lists in the book. And basically, uh, it's, it's no longer Brindlewood Bay, it's Matrons of Mystery. And it is a fantastic little digest-sized book. It's, uh, what, 42 pages or so, 46 pages. It's Everything's in the book, including three little investigations, mysteries you can play. And it's a lovely little game. I liked Brindlewood Bay. I still do. But Brindlewood Bay has this kind of underlying cultist mythos. Cthulhu-esque aspect. Cthulhu-esque horror rising thing mm -hmm. that you, you need to play out like 10 scenarios or 10 mysteries for it to really come to fruition. Sue stripped all that away. And this gets to what I like about uh, the TV shows that uh, that have inspired the game murder mysteries. Uh, so you play older women that are 50 years plus that are in their golden years. They're retired. 
and you become the busybodies, a group of busybodies, and you get into people's businesses. And for some reason or another, one way or another, you get pulled into a murder mystery case and you solve crime. I enjoyed the read. It's a, it's well-written. Running it's fun. Um, I ran it for Pookie and uh, another friend of mine, Roz, and we had a great time running it. They, were play- they had a great time playing it. I had a fun time running it. I know Bud's played it. I don't know if you've I played, played it, it Sue. yet. Sue ran it for me. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 Early um, last week. Nice. Did you like it? Yeah, we had a blast, yeah. Yeah, so it just scratches that itch uh, for that kind of murder mystery, that cozy kind of feel vibe that she was going for that Brindlewood Bay goes for, but has other bits and pieces to it. I, I think Sue's really captured without all of the other moving pieces uh, and just does it a little bit better for that type of game that I want. I, I know this term's overused a lot in the gaming industry, but it's an elegant little game. It really is. So I thought you were going to say it had flavor. Mm. Oh, it's got it, the, the flavor is tea. Tea, yeah. And, and, and scones. I, I, yeah. I think your quote to me, Absolutely. bud, was this was this is probably one one of the most British games you've played in a while. Um, it's the most British yeah. game I've ever read. Yeah, I mean the the fact that the fact that you're you're breaking it is a nice a nice sit down and a cup of tea, and that's how you remove conditions. Um, you couldn't really get much more English than that, right? <laughs> I mean, I played it. I played it last week with Sue running in, mm-hmm. and the thing about the thing about it, it's not even really that much about the mysteries. It's about the the, the crazy characters you create. Because I played it with Kay, Kay Elling, it was KO on Twitter, yeah. and Doc Griffiths. And the three of us were just in pleats the whole the whole session. And, you know, yeah, we managed to, to solve the murder and, and all that. But it was never really about that. It was about playing, I mean, you know, playing someone who modeled on my mother and me, me nan, all the strange traits that they had. And it was just completely believable because they're based on real people. It's very, it's very, very English. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I dare not. I, know, I probably shouldn't say who no, I based my character not. on. <laughs> <laughs> no. But you had us in stitches. I will, I, I will attest to that. That was fantastic. Yeah, for the record, we're not letting attest to who he was modeling his matron after. For I, yeah, I'll bleep you out for legal, for, <laughs> nope. for, for legal legal reasons that you'd have to have a Kickstarter for. Right. <laughs> Yeah, for legal reasons, we can't do it. But he had us in stitches, and Roz's character was, I don't know who she was basing hers off of, but she was copping this accent, and it was fantastic, and she was totally getting into character, too. It was great. Oh, Yeah, I mean, I would say one thing, that it's a game that does need sort of like three, yes. possibly four matrons to really kind of work. Okay, with two, it's... Uh, it's a bit of hard. Yeah, work. I, I thought when I read it, three would be the sweet spot. Yeah, um, I would. I would need to run it again with three, with four, uh, to really dial in where the sweet spot is. But I think it's either going to be three or four. Uh, two. Uh, the thing is about it, the, the the humor in the book is obviously because because Sue's English, is it's very it's got a very English humor about it. I mean, the fact that you can cure something with a with a sit down and a cup of tea, <laughs> really kind of says it all, doesn't it? Well, I mean, you guys have been telling yeah, Scott and, and I the, for the la- almost two years now that tea fixes everything. So it did, it's like a universal cure. Yeah, uh, and the other thing is, I mean, the humor is things like um, the title of one of the mysteries is is uh, um, Gardener's Question <laughs> yeah. Crime, uh, which I just I, I when I did the unboxing of that, I was just looking through, and I'd never seen it before, 
That made me laugh out loud. I just thought that was really ding dong uh, death is the other one, isn't it? Yeah. A fun. And I know where I know yeah. where that one was inspired from. I've actually seen uh, one of the TV series that she references. I've uh, I've actually seen the episode that that was uh, inspired from. And the thing is, as well, um, that there was what one of the scenarios in the book takes place at a role playing convention. And and I think someone strongly resembling Pookie is in it. Maybe. Well, there's Maybe. a there's a there's a disquieted what? gentleman who wears a waistcoat with squared pockets. It's very possible it could be Pookie. Can't possibly be me. I have never been seen wearing a waistcoat <laughs> in the wild. Nope, I have to get a screenshot now, do I? <laughs> screenshot it. So, <laughs> so that, anyways, yeah, that's my number two. So. Around the room one more time, and this time we are going to talk about our number one top picks of 2021. So first up is Scott. Okay, well this this one this one took a bit, like with most most number ones, you know. But it it really set resonant for a minute. But at the end, there was no question that for 2021, my favorite is Impossible Landscapes. The Delta Green campaign, the first campaign they've ever done. This is by Arc Dream Publishing, I think is their full name, and uh, written by um, Redacted. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, written by Dennis Stetwiller, Weiler, however way you pronounce it. But uh, but anyways, so Impossible Landscapes. Uh, it is the as I mentioned, is the first campaign produced by by the folks who give you Delta Green, what a campaign it is. Now, my perception is coming strictly from the uh, position of a player. Uh, Bud here, you know, was very gracious and invited, you know, well, the three of us, uh, Keith, uh, myself, and and Pookie, and also um, uh, Alex, um, oh boy, I'm drawing a, is it Gillette? Gillette, Gillette. It's one of them. Yeah, uh, 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 Gothnog, right? Uh, one of the yep. one of the authors of of Highway of Blood and many many other wonderful Call of Cthulhu campaign or camp scenarios. Uh, but anyways, so I I own the book uh, as I think most of us do. And uh, right before I started even reading it is when I got the invite. And the first thing I was told from Bud was if you own it. Don't don't touch it. Don't read it. Don't look at it because you're going to ruin so many good things that it's it's just you know it's it's going to be an absolute travesty that you're spoiling some of this for you. And I've been good. Um, I haven't uh, other than just an initial page through. I haven't read anything of it. The campaign itself uh, it, it it is essentially it's based on the uh, the Yellow King and Carcosa and you know the madness involving into the Yellow Sign. And boy, is it <laughs> is is this been a roller coaster ride like I've never been on before? Um, we've we have played through the the we played through the first two chapters. Is that correct? Uh, you're halfway through, but actually maybe three quarters of the way through. Okay, chapter two. Chapter two. But then chapter two is twice as long as any of the chapter. Right. So you're probably about halfway through the scenario. So I I mean, and it's going to be hard for me to say how wonderful this is without doing any spoilers. So I'm going to do my best here. But we, we played through the we played through the first part, which is titled The Night Floors, which is a kind of a redoing of the original scenario, which was um, uh, penned by Detwiller for the first edition Delta Green, um, if I'm not mistaken. And obviously, you know, our resident uh, uh, historian, correct me if I'm wrong, but wait, no, Pookie. 
Um, <laughs> so, bud Pookie, Pookie Bud? Uh, no, but um, which which was fantastic. Um, I, I I think the what how it's been described is me looking utterly confused, angry, and upset most of the time because we're playing online. And in a, most of the time, when we get to some sort of ridiculous, mind-twisting event, those famous words are said by me every single time. Fucking debt, Willer. Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Because uh, it's set in the right context. Uh, it, it is everything that you would want from this type of, of campaign. Mind-bending, mind-twisting, just, you know, you're never really sure what's going on. You're always un uncomfortable due to the the aspects going on uh we it's highly deadly uh, i'm on my second character as most of us are no nope. yeah. well yeah not you well sort of i i kind of am but not i was revived yeah right yeah you were lucky <laughs> is what that was well, yeah. which which i which I'm not going to feel yeah. too bad about because after you go through the first chapter, there's an, an immense amount of time goes by, about 20 years or so, and you pulled the short straw on where your character was after time went by. So it's it's I don't feel too horrid that you're still existing in this uh, suburban lifestyle that that your character has uh, rolled into. But that's just that's from the player side, and I'm not going to spoil too much from someone else who might be talking about this, but the other thing just to note, uh, there there's a lot of involvement from the, you know, from the game master side, uh, from the handler side, that doesn't necessarily just involve you running the game for the players, but there's bits of insanity and things that uh, that you're gonna deal with when, um, when you're reading this, but I'll, I'll leave that for, you know, for one of the others here to, to, to discuss, but it, it's, it is, engaging we, we've we've had a giant break from this game uh i am looking forward to getting back into it uh i have i have out of most everything that i played this year this is the one where i've done my best to make sure that i'm available uh even when i do mistake it and screw up the schedule as i've done um there's another catchphrase for that but <laughs> but, but we, we can let that one go we don't have to say it you deserve to scoff you deserve it. <laughs> i but, concur uh, but no it, it's I mean, what what can I say? Uh, we most people listening to this knows what Delta Green is, knows what it can be, knows what it's like, um, and kind of knows what to expect. But even with that, even if you've been playing in Delta Green for years now in an ongoing campaign, when you go into this, you think you know what's going on, and you think you think you know what's going on. You don't. Even if you're running it, you think you know what's going on, but there's a good chance you don't know either. But yeah, so that's. I, I'm going to kind of cut it a little short here because, like I said, it's hard without spoiling it. So I'm just not going to. I'm going to avoid that and try try not to flub it up. But if you're a Delta Green fan and or you love the, the aspects of the Yellow King and you know the the Yellow Sign in Carcosa, if you like that kind of mind warping, twisted, uh, horror horrific aspects like that, play it, play it, play it, play it. This is something that um, you know you won't regret. And for it being such a large running campaign it's not going to take you five years to run like uh like the like the high-end call of cthulhu campaigns this maybe a year if you're or less but i mean that's, i know that says a lot but but believe it or not a year goes by like that when you're when you're engaged as you are within this campaign so yep impossible landscapes and that's my favorite thing of uh 2021 
Yeah, we're still in 2021. I know. Uh, Shit, it's, 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 I just... <clears throat> a few more days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for a few more days. I'll just add that, you know, as a player, I've I've immensely loved it. I mean, I turned down the opportunity to to play another Saturday game uh, fortnightly in 2022 for the first projected eight or 10 months of the year, just so I wouldn't conflict with impossible landscapes. Cause like I am, I'm invested in the game. I'm committed to it. Cause it, it's an amazing experience. So I can see why it's your number one pick. Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, agreed. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just the depth and detail to it. And even just a very kind of brief flick through browse through. Um, it looks, the layout is actually amazing. The artwork is, is, is superb. And then when you get when you actually come to be given the clues, you know a traditional Call of Cthulhu um, handout. Oh, here's a letter. Okay, or here's a newspaper, you know, article. Fine, you read those, get the clues, go do investigate that bit mm-hmm. next part of the mystery. There's clues within each of the handouts. A lot of them are puzzles. You know, um, you know whether it's it's tiny things like dots above certain words or. What's this symbol mean? And you're tying it up. And there's a website yeah. that they've set, that been set up. It's absolutely mind-bending. It's the attention. Yeah, it's the attention to detail like that. You're absolutely just a, a, yeah. a, a, a yeah, there's, dog. There's, I, I, I think another thing to point out is there's so many times where I, I've been told, you know, Scott, you're just there shaking your head. You, you have your, you have your head in your hands again. Are you okay? <laughs> Because you you'll get you'll get a clue and you will treat it like Pookie said like this Call of Cthulhu thing and you'll think you figured it out and you'll test your your uh, your theory thinking I've got it no <laughs> you don't it doesn't work it doesn't work you need to start thinking not outside of the box but you need to like become the box I guess and just just get as twisted as you can yeah it's it's a campaign that really will confound seasoned um, long term players. Yeah, seasoned players, Call of Cthulhu, and other Lovecraftian yeah. investigative horror role-playing games. It's not constructed like that. The clues and clues and what's going on is appears to be much deeper than your. I would offer that to. if you've built the straw man theory built off the clues, just burn your fucking straw man and think outside the straw man because that's where you're gonna go. <laughs> yeah, but on the plus side, straw man, the burning that straw is man true because you might need it. <laughs> so, uh, Bud. Uh, do you want to offer any comments now, or do you want to refrain? Well, well, well. I might as well just go to my number one because it ties the bookends. Okay. It, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. My number one pick for 2021 is Impossible Landscapes. Hardly probably surprising given Shocking. the nature of of my my YouTube channel. I've you know I've done full breakdowns of many many Delta Green products, and as the guy running it for you guys. You pretty much hit the nail on the head. I mean, as you were saying about the clues, you think you've got it. There's clues that, that appear in the first part that that already freak you out. And then when you take a look at them in the second part, they have a whole new meaning. Yeah. Um, the, the attention to detail, and I mean, the book itself messes with, with, with the handler's head. Like whenever you see the word, the yellow sign written on a page, it's burned into the page. <laughs> so, you know, and, and it, occasionally there'll be, the book is filled with annotations like a mythos tome. And there's, there's one bit, but it's not a spoiler. There's one bit that, that you, you're eventually starting to work out who the handwriting is in the book. And there's one quote from the yellow sign, and there's a set of sound handwriting that says, I wrote this. And then underneath it is a new set of handwriting saying, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, I, and I was it was like that that moment of like who's this we're like we're, we're two chapters into it i've never seen this handwriting before it plays with your head the book itself i mean i've spoken to like like dr mitch and annie and griff and they both said to them it's, it's like a work of art the book mm-hmm. it's beautifully put together the let the, the very layout of it messes with your head when you eventually get to read it just check out the con the index at the back <laughs> Even the index messes with your head because it's got annotations in it. Oh, God. It's an absolute... I mean, what has been funny for me running it, I've played with Pookie a number of times, and it's the first time I've ever seen him flustered. (laughs) The first time I've ever seen him not know how to respond to something. And and when when that happens, I'm like, yeah, it's working. I'm doing it right. And I mean, as I say, the number of times Scott, the the bit in the night floors where he literally just wanted to know what the time was, and I said, when you look at your watch, the hands are spinning, <laughs> and I watched them crumble on the screen. That like, was beautiful. His hands. It's it's incredible. Yeah. And when you when you come to think about it, I mean, the original night floors was nineteen ninety eight. The original just it was, and it was written as an as an essentially an exercise to show how the King in Yellow could be done in Delta Green, right. And then Dennis the Twill has worked it into the scenario. It's a perfect fit how he's done it. And I remember reading at the time when it, he put, because he put, I think he put the whole manuscript on his Patreon. And I remember seeing a, a reply on Twitter saying, I've read the whole thing. This is Delta Green's Masks and Arathotep. And I remember thinking to myself, well, we'll see. And, you know, because you, know, you think of a Masks and Arathotep has had how many editions for them to twe- tweak it and, re- um, refine it and now the seventh edition version is right. essentially chaos have admitted this is as good as it's going to get they're not going to they're not going to make it add any more to it this is it and you think oh yeah well if it's mass and this is the first crack at it this is the first time it's ever been published so imagine if they did a later edition of it down the line how much better it would be to be just tweaked and tightened and i, I think that's only yeah. going to work if if we hear dennis has been committed and and he's literally writing the next the the, the updated one with a pencil in his mouth, you know, with, with his uh, scrolling hand. on the wall of his uh, padded exactly. cell. And and you, and, uh, and Shane Ivey is, is occasionally coming in just to collect the scribblings <laughs> and going right. <laughs> you know, like the shrine, the shrine and the night floors. Yeah, you like that, but it'd be just yeah. But but uh, if I could think of one way of improving it, and there's only really one way, is if it had a prop set like oh, masks. Yes. Oh my god! I mean, imagine what that would that would be. Yeah. A properly done HP Lovecraft Society prop set for, oh. for impossible landscapes. It'd be it'd be fantastic. I, but it, it would it it would be several tiers because the only thing I can think of out of everything I would want, at least so far, experiencing. And this is not a spoiler because you you're going to know what I say when I mean it when I when I say it is the machine. You know, yeah. The, the, you know, <laughs> oh. it, if, if if even if yeah. it was, even if it didn't work, just just having that thing uh, there to put down in front of your players and go, you know, this is what you see. And just have them, you know, look around it, still trying to figure out what the hell this thing is, just like their characters would be, and go, "I, uh, uh, what do I do with this?" Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it would be fantastic if that doesn't come about. If somebody could actually do a three D model of that online, three D printer, just yeah, have that. Yeah, well, not three D printed, but just have it sort of like you can view it online. Yeah. Oh, and like it. augmented reality. That's- yeah. Because that's like the like this kind of emerging yeah, 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 thing yeah. for the game scene now is this augmented reality jivey thingy, my bobber with yeah. your phone. Someone started doing it with masks, haven't they? And they're like, they had an augmented reality. Uh, what is that? Type four? Is it 
Type 40 or are some other companies doing some stuff for Call of Cthulhu that's augmented reality now? Oh, yeah. It's the, yeah, it's the people, it's the, it's the Type 40. Are, they're the ones that do that fancy book cover folder type thing. I think it's the same, yes. same people, same people. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They've got some Call of Cthulhu scenarios, basically one shots and, um, they yeah. did the ring yeah, but i could shield. see something like that to to represent some of those things that you couldn't put physically into a prop kit but i think you're right but i mean that would that would be fantastic to have that kind of treatment for for impossible landscapes that would that would take something that's already this impressive and just like send it over the edge yeah yeah i, I mean i've got a, i have a copy and i am due to review it but i can't i just don't yeah. want to spoil, don't spoil it. it for yourself you will regret you it. know and, and, it, and it is a case of one of the few times, I think, where um, I will be reviewing something that mm-hmm. I've played through fully, because obviously, as you know, as reviewers, we get to read a lot of stuff and review yeah. it before we ever get yeah. to play. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I do look forward to the 27 hours later after we finish this, Pookie, that you actually read the whole book and do your review an hour <laughs> after that. So, uh. <laughs> Well, you will have a different perspective on it, as you say, because, oh, yeah. you know, you'll have played it. And then mm. you'd read it and then you'd be able to put the two mm. together. Um, yeah, so that's my pick for the year. And and, and, and if it doesn't win awards, um, it's criminal. If it doesn't win an award. 100%, yeah. I would agree. Pookie, what is your number one pick, my friend? I almost went for The Company of the Dragon, which is the sequel to last year's, is it last year's or the year before's, Six Seasons in Sartar from the Johnstown Compendium. Of course, the RuneQuest segment, but what I'm going to pick is the ah, RuneQuest starter set. Reoccurring theme. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever quite seen a starter set as good as this for one setting. Um, and when then basically in the past two or three years, starter sets have, uh, have got good again. Because I think what's happened is people have kind of looked at the starter sets of the past and they've been essentially, they've, they've looked at it and gone, well, okay, let's make this as good as we can. Let's not do it to sort of like, you know, what can we just right. knock out? You know, it's, this, is, this is a gaming product which, with which we want to sell our game and, 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 and intellectual property, you know, and get people to come back to it and pick up the core book. As I said earlier, Chaosium did it previously with Call of Cthulhu very, very well. And then they've just, stepped, they've just sort of like, you know, we can do better with the Green Quest starter set. And, and have and one way in which they, they've gone one step better is making it appeal even more to uh, the de- dedicated Grantha files, um, you know, the devotees of RuneQuest, um, than, than necessarily perhaps the Call of Cthulhu starter set. Did. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So See, it- the, the comparison I would make would be comparable, or not a direct comparison, comparable to the Warhammer starter set because it contains material that's nowhere else. So it's gonna get yeah, that, that, that it's gonna get your old players to buy it as well as your new ones because the new ones want to play it. The old players want the yeah. the extra material. It's gonna you get Uber's right, don't you? Yeah, I mean the um, I mean the, the Cthulhu starter set um, has uh, scenarios in it, well three scenarios in it, which are unavailable for seventh edition, but there are updates of previous uh, previously available scenarios, and they're classics. But no, the all of the content. In the playable content in the, the Runquest starter set is new, and the other thing it does with that new content is that it essentially it is a couple of days ride from Apple Lane, which is essentially the starting point for essentially if you're playing in Runquest and Sartar in the yeah. uh, GM's pack and the adventures. You know, 
you can plug the two into together with relative ease, especially given that uh, um, the third scenario, Rainbow Mounds, is not that far away. And from it that. ties I mean, everything, ties it all together. And a majority of the pre-gens mm. that come with the, uh, you know, the, the GM kit are the same characters that are within here that the, the, and that they've been utilizing, you know, since the, you know, the um, uh, quick start. The quick start, yes. The, the broken tower. Yeah, the broken tower. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, they are using they are using the basically the uh, the signature six the six signature characters they used before, but they're putting them in the new route and the new format for of the new character sheet, which is really kind of a lot more accessible. And then they're supporting it with another eight different characters, mm -hmm. which not seen before, which showcase showcase the range of characters you can have that are possible. And I know, I mean, the one thing I think people kind of said, kind of jokingly, is going, oh, uh, you know, there's no ducks or non-humans in it. To be honest, at this point, I don't think that's really an issue because essentially um, playing a non-human race, a member of the non-human race is in RuneQuest, is, it's not play, like playing in D&D. It's another step up yeah. in complexity. Oh, yeah. And back what you would get in Let a me think about an elf, for example, if you wanted oh. to play uh, an Aldrei yeah. army. They're literally walking plants. They're not like elves in any other setting. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I mean the same thing again with the Muscali. Yes. They are yeah. completely alien. Easiest kind of um, two races you would actually play, I think, in, if you're doing of the older races, would probably be trolls or um, yeah. or, yeah. or, or yeah, ducks. Yeah, I actually, but uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it comes back to again, essentially, as Keith has said, the starter set is incredible value for money. Um, you know, uh, you have 14 characters in there, which means essentially if you've got a group of six, six, six players, that's two sets of characters just in case one dies. Yeah. And you're going to get months and months of, of, of gameplay. I mean, when you that. think about it as well, if you bought the GM pack and, the, and you've got the quick start, you've got, you've got a fair hefty amount of, of material to work with there. Oh my God. Because only yeah. if you've got the broken tower, you've got the extra stuff in there and you've also got, the, and it all ties together. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, the point is that, um, you know, I'm running you through uh, in the in the request game. You know, through the the initial scenarios for um, the GM's book. At some point, I will take you off in the direction of Johnstown and do those scenarios as well. You know, it's just adding extra. You know, the thing is, and if you think about it, if you're an experienced player, you don't necessarily need all the rules, okay? But you're getting the scenarios, you're getting um, background content. Which you can add to your campaign. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. John Johnstown's the big thing, you know, isn't it? Really. Yeah. I mean, we've already said how good the maps are of the region. The map of Johnstown itself is terrific. Yeah, everything's labelled as well. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's a, really a beautiful map. map. Everything's labelled. Yeah. And the thing is, if you, when you go through the text, okay, and it's describing particular quarters, they take excerpts of that map and put yeah. it next to the text. And you know where it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that you can really easily. Yeah, it's incredible. One well thing I would out. I would comment on it, and we have I don't think it's been brought up yet. Those three scenarios, uh, they are like programmed learning scenarios in that the first of the three mm. scenarios, it's a little more guided for on the GM side of things to to make sure that you uh, as a first time, potentially as a first time game master, you you have some frame of reference for some of the rules that are being introduced in that you're introducing for the players and things like that and it's very conceptually basic and that but it's it's a fun little scenario and then the next scenario is more socially 
oriented and city-based and investigative and expands on what uh, the rule premises are uh, that are in the rule book that the players can now use more rules and expand what, you know, what they've learned uh, and apply that. And then the uh, rainbow mounds is just kind of wide open. Yeah. The, the, the only, the only other one that I'm familiar with that kind of goes that route is uh Simba room with its copper crown scenarios which kind of each one each one of three focuses on different aspects so you f- get familiar with not just the whole entirety of the game but this one's focusing on combat this one's focusing on role playing and this one's kind of tying it all together and see how it comes which is great it's 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 a, it's a wonderful it's it's nice having that learning tool not just here's the rules here's the scenario now go figure it out so that's Yep. Yeah, I liked it as as a as a new person to the RuneQuest world and game as or Glorantha as a whole, the RuneQuest mm-hmm. game. Uh, when I read through the scenarios to write my review, I thought the way they designed the scenarios in the order in which they laid them out, I thought it was it was fantastic. It, um, it made me kind of excited for what's coming. Oh yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it as again as somebody new to the game. Um, I felt like this product was made for me. I can see uh, returning players and uh, can, you know players that have been playing for a long time. I can see I can see the appeal that they you know the things that the, you guys find in the box appealing. Um, but as a new player, I feel it's it's made for me. But I can also again, like I said, I can also see why you guys say no. It's made for me. It's it's made for two different types of audiences, and it's a hell of a marketing um, angle that they took and they did it right. I mean, it was two and a half years in development, and it shows. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, they did. They did a fantastic mm. job. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it begs the question: if the RuneQuest starter set is this good, how good is is the Pendragon Sixth Edition starter set going to be? Who knows? Oh, oh yeah, they, do, do... they, they want to do one for all of the games, but look of it, don't they? Yeah. And just then, yeah. next time there's a new edition, just I mean, update it. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is, you know, going down the road, you, I, I, you mean, you're looking again, possibly at Rivers of London, Seventh Sea, and uh, the other thing they're doing is Lords of the Middle, uh, Lords of the Middle, Lords, Seventh Lords of the Middle Sea. No, I think it's Middle Sea. Seven, no, it's not Seventh Sea. It's Lords of the Middle. They also do Seventh Sea yeah, though, because Seventh Sea is, is it, okay. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but Lords of the Seventh Sea is uh, Lords of the Middle Sea yeah. is something they're developing in. I believe that is correct. What I'd like to know, Pookie, then, is uh, how soon is our campaign after we get past uh, Johnstown? When are we getting to the land of the ninja? Via the land of the Vikings. Um, <laughs> the thing is, yeah. Well, the thing is, you might, you might, the thing is, I, I can imagine you going to the land of the Vikings. The land of the ninja? Well, you won't see them. So you won't well, <laughs> top answer. All right. So we're going to do my number one. Yeah. So I've got. Can anybody take a guess? Ah, I'm looking around the cameras. Uh, let's is see. it the Tomb Companion? It- I don't think Tingleverse <sighs> came out with anything this year, but I could be wrong. Is Give it me the a Thousand moment. Thrones? <laughs> no, no, and no. Well, is it the? I'm disappointed. I, I, I'm going with the Bull, uh, the Rocky and Bullwinkle. Is it the Ballast Ball game? game? Oh my God! You guys are getting so close, but you are so far away. Nope, Scott. Uh, Monopoly. Damn it. All right. Connect you got four. it. That's too complicated. Go no, on. That... Sorry. <laughs> oh, hold on. Which 
Which version of Monopoly? Well, so uh, to answer that question, uh, the version of Monopoly that I want to nominate for my number one pick for this year is going to be the Twilight 2000 fourth edition version um, of not Monopoly, but like uh, I from said, Free be- League. Like I said before, I'll insert laughter there. Go on. Keith. Oh, please. Yes. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> <laughs> so that's got a, oh, um, a suffer radiation damage. Do oh, not pass there's there. another joke. You you passed your limit. <laughs> but do you get that joke? I... Oh. I, I mean, I get it, but I'm not laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes, Twilight 2000 4th Edition from Free League is my number one pick of the year. Uh, simply because, uh, like the RuneQuest um, starter set, you get a ton of stuff in this box. It's the, it's, this is not a starter set. This is their core game. So it is, it is the Game Master's book uh, in soft cover, the player's book in soft cover, uh, the Sweden and Polish map, two-sided, full-size, in 10-kilometer hexes for the movement rules. There's smaller battle maps, tactical battle maps, all the dice, everything you need is in the box. I think retail is like 55 bucks, um, which, is, which is a good price. My estimate is probably with everything that's included in the box and scenario generators and everything in there, you, you could easily year and a half to two years out of just the core box itself without any of the other stuff that's in the pipeline, uh, various campaigns and scenarios for it. That being said, I actually had the opportunity to play it at a recent online game convention too. And we played a, a short little scenario and or mission, whatever you want to call it. And I enjoyed the living daylights out of it. It uses uh, Free League's Year Zero engine, but modified to fit its theme, its tone. And I think it does it really well. Uh, instead of throwing buckets of D6s around, looking for those elusive sixes to pop up, it uses D12s and graduates down to D6s. Um, so everything has a rating, A, B, C, or D, and A is a D12, all the way down to a D being a D6. And depending on your rating, that's when the single die you throw. You always throw two dice no matter what. If you're shooting, you can add, you can commit more ammunition to your shot. So you can throw D6 bullet dice, which means you commit potentially more ammunition, which means you can have more hits. It does what it plans to do and says it's going to do is give you that uh, World War III that never happened feel, in my opinion, very well. I never had the opportunity to play the original game in either uh, first, second, or third edition. Uh, It was always one of those games that I would see on the game shelf, and I kind of steered clear of it. I was playing, you know, as a a teenager and whatnot, I was playing Mm D&D. And nobody else or, you know, superheroes or whatever, nobody else was playing those that particular game where I lived when I was growing up. So I didn't have the opportunity to play it. Uh, so this was a little nostalgic buy into Kickstarter for me. And when I, when it delivered, uh, what, two months ago, I was excited to have it. Now, is this, this is not a starter set. This is a self-contained box set, right? It is a self-contained box set. Yes, okay. it is. I wouldn't call it a starter set, but because everything you need to play in it, to play the game is there. The two book set for the rules are full complete rules okay um much like uh forbidden lands right has the the game master's book and the player's book in the box set and it's a complete core game in the box this is the same so it is it is everything you need to play in the box pookie do you own that own a copy of this bud okay yeah I do. but do you own a copy of this uh, no, I never played it back in the day, so I have okay. nothing to offer to yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's one of those where, I mean, like Keith, I, I knew of it, 
and I knew it existed. It never appealed to me, uh, not detracting from the game itself, but it's as kind of stated in our, you know, the, the, the previous podcast was certain game types such as this. This is like strictly a, this exists in an alternative reality of our world, but still based in, rea- in reality. There's nothing fantastic about it. You're you're essentially just you know real people surviving in a post-apocalyptic world, not with monsters or gadgets or, or robots or Fallout type stuff, but your own thing. And it never that kind of stuff. Just you know, like Keith westerns and sci-fi stuff was never my wheelhouse. But is there anything about it that you know that you think Keith that would cause somebody to to appeal to it or Pookie? Um. Well. Uh... Okay. I did play it back in the day, a little bit, and I played the second edition, which was the one using GDW's uh, mm-hmm. D10 house system, and it was it, it always felt it was always felt a very militaristic game, and it always felt as if it appealed to players who liked playing militaristic games and having lots of military equipment and. Its reputation, I mean, in, in certainly in the UK here, was very much soured um, by uh, a review by Marcus Rowland, who re- he was scathing of the game for um, well. its Americanism, uh, and it's because of, because its focus was entirely mm-hmm. upon upon the US in the original version, and then of course upon the idea of surviving a nuclear exchange at, at, at any level. Because obviously the original came out in 1984, and that was right. the height. And, of and the if war. you were surviving a nuclear exchange yeah. in a game, it probably was our fault. Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. Your your yeah, specific probably. fault. And, and the thing is, yes. Oh, well, there, there's a different Sky's type, fault. There's a different type of nuclear exchange that's my fault, and usually when it occurs, my kids leave the room. But that's a different episode. So <laughs> see, it's class like that you can't teach, is it? <laughs> Only on Titter Pigs. <laughs> Wow. I would, sorry, go ahead, Pookie. I would add, though, um, I mean, Pookie hit on something. I'm, I'm retired military, so obviously, I, I like a lot of military guys, retired or not, I like military things. I am I play tabletop war games, hex encounter-type games, card-driven war games. Obviously, there's, there's something there that appeals to me. Uh, so there is, there is that. There's that militaristic aspect of the game that I do like. I can relate to the game because obviously I have a several decades of military background, you know, under my belt. And it's in a time period that I can relate to. Um, I love Call of Cthulhu. It's one of my favorite games, but I didn't grow up in the 30s. Right. You know, it's hard to relate to the classic era. Now, I have oodles of college degrees and master's credits and stuff like that in history. And so I, I can relate to that time period. because I've done a lot of research in that. But as somebody who didn't didn't live through that time period, it is hard to relate to it for most people. You know, I can relate to these time periods where this game is set. Uh, so when they're talking about the different cities and time, you know, uh, the vehicles, the weapons, the uh, the things in their fictitional or their fictitious. God, I'm making up words tonight. You know, their fictitious, fictitious word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, story, you know, how the the nuclear exchanges happened and, you know, the, the fallout uh, between the nations and what have you, how all that comes about. I, it, it makes sense to me. So I think people that have a an interest in military history, a people that have an interest in modern conflict, this is probably something that's going to appeal to them. If you don't have an interest in it, it may not appeal to you. 
Well, one one question, I guess this is for you and Pookie since you have the game, and if you you I don't know how much time Pookie spent, but Keith, you have. So one of the things that I've read about the original game, and like a lot of military games, is an attention to the detail of weapons and whatnot to the point where it's almost ridiculous. It detracts from the game. There's just this enormous amount of detail that it's almost like a side game trying to keep track of this nonsense and, and whatnot. That that may be for some people, but does that carry over into the new game? Have they simplified that a little bit? or? Um. I actually did an unboxing recently, at least it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not up online, of the original okay. first edition rules. And looking at it, I didn't find it to be quite as um, so much, didn't, didn't find it that it emphasised the weapons as much as I had kind of remembered. They're definitely there. There is sort of like a, an inbuilt element of emphasis upon um, survival. and But that's that's the one thing that is really carried over and made more of um, in, in the new version where they're using that to build build around communities um, you know because essentially there's, there's sort of there's kind of two drives in the game so there's the one way obviously you, you stay there in in Europe uh, in Poland or in, in Sweden and you build a community and you survive the other one was going going home and that's the classic kind of drive in the first edition where you're in Poland you try and get to somewhere point of civilization and from there uh you go to basically warsaw and try and get a train to go across to germany and then get back to the states going home but yeah that's what's been carried over although there is obviously pages and pages of weapons in both in both versions for for me um both of those sound really appealing to play but from remember i mean if a game is like you know the computer game metro 2033 yep if it was like that kind of thing, I could see myself loving it. You know, it's like, you know, like kind of old stations covered in snow and, you know, they kind of never know what's in there. Mm-hmm. But the people, I mean, back in the day, it had, it had a really kind of hardcore following. And the people who were into it could name any gun and any caliber of bullet that would go in, in those guns. It was like a gun obsession game. I still think you you could probably still run into those folks these days. I, I don't know that you would have that same volume or caliber of person uh, that's fixated on that, you know, in 2021 or 2022, but you might still run into, into some of those. We run into it in the war gaming community. I mean, there's those folks that are just laser focused on armaments. I mean, that's just kind of their thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The point to make there is to remember is that Twilight 2000 originally was designed by uh, at least ROTC the original game was done by Frank Chadwick, who you know, is a uh, yeah, an awarded, um, merited a war game designer. Yeah, yeah, right. But the point is, essentially, they had military experience yes, right. of, of themselves. Whereas, I think, I think that's, I don't know about the the, the new designers, the new the designers of the new version. You know, I, I don't think they necessarily had that experience. And whether so, the, the emphasis is yeah. My understanding is that the design team did not have military experience, but they brought in uh, military consultants uh, to advise as, mm. as advisors for making sure like representations of weapons are right and you know vehicle movements are proper and things that are supposed to explode you know don't explode you know huge radiuses when they're only you know have a very small radius and that kind of stuff. 
to answer your question, Scott, though, I don't mm-hmm. think it's um, when I look through the rules, when I was reading through it, I don't think it's like super hyper focused on all of this crazy detail litany of huh? detail like this. It's got detail, but it's not um, extensive. You, you, we're not going to get into an argument about the specific weight of a buckshot if I'm if I'm no. shooting a shotgun no. in a rainstorm. Whereas... No, 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 no. And I, and I think that in part that's reflect that's that's sort of reflecting the rules where you're you're rolling these handfuls of d6 or um, you know particular dice rather than something uh, where you're rolling like percentile dice. Where I think that the emphasis yeah. in the mechanics themselves is is yeah. is, is, is different. And, and it's, it's appealing. Difference. I mean, it's it's definitely not something that I would be, you know, it, it's different than if I was just, hey, let's just pretend we are soldiers storming the beach of Normandy. This one sounds like it would be a bit more fun. There's a bit more story aspects to it. it, uh, it that'd be you're right. More appealing. It, it does mm. want you to focus on the story. So like some of the other games in the Year Zero product line, like Forbidden Lands, right? Mm-hmm. Where you are traveling across a map. In this game, you are, yes, you are traveling across a map. You are checking, you know, as, you, as, as a game master, as your players are moving across a map, if you are playing that type of game, you're looking for, you know, hey, what's in that? What's in that 10 kilometer hex? Is there some some random encounter they're going to, you know, are they going to hit partisans? Are they going to hit uh, rebel forces? Are they going to hit Russians? Are they, you know, what, you know, are they going to encounter some uh, militia group? Are they going to find nothing as they're moving down this road or off road or they're going to come to a town? Is there something going on in this town? Do they need fuel? Well, hey, they need fuel. This town has fuel. But what price are they going to have to pay to get that fuel, that that alcohol fuel for their vehicle? You know, what are they going to have to do to get that fuel? And that's where the story then starts to to evolve. And when do we meet Master Blaster? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> See, if so. it was if it was yeah. like a mix between like Fallout 3 and Metro 2033, I could see myself loving it. Yeah, because... I think the other, I think the other thing is in the new rules is essentially it's the allocate. The other thing that's going to make the difference is the allocation of equipment. Because in the original, you basically got a huge wadge of dollars on which to spend spend equipment so that you everyone sort of like could be wandering around with their own vehicles you know up to the point where you know they have their own uh, um uh, m1 abrams not in this tank, one um and and what this one hmm. i doubt it wow. very much okay. no depending on the depending on the um character type or archetype that you're playing basically tells you what your starting kit is, what, what starting equipment you have. And some uh, have the possibility of having a vehicle, but there's no guarantee of having a vehicle. If one of them ends up having a vehicle, then, then you have to, it's kind of a random determination or the GM can then decide what they have. But usually it's a, ra- it would be a random determination. Is it a, is it just a like six pack pickup truck with a cap on the back or no cap or, or do they actually have like an armor personnel carrier um, that they've commandeered, you know, something like that? Or are they just on foot and then they have to ambush somebody and then steal a vehicle so that then they, then they have wheels? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. And I mean, I can remember sort of like playing it and everyone wandering around sort of like having a, a, tra- a trailer full of equipment and sort of having and pulling out um, a Hecaron Cock G- G11 yeah. battle rifle, which is an absurd thing to own. Um, because it's a prototype, and none, none were really, you know, created. It wasn't realistic. I mean, yeah, even, no. This you know, is this. 
the setup for this is far more realistic. You're going to in a kind of a post-apocalyptic setting, in a sense, you're going to have you're going to have the kit that you have on you. Um, but the other thing, neither Pookie or I touched on, you put you can play civilians in this, too. You don't necessarily have to be somebody that has a military see, background in the game. See, that that also would be kind of a bit more appealing because the, the idea of we're, we're a group of well-trained, you know, um, military people who, you know, who could technically work. This is what we've been trained to survive, so to speak. It is a little bit appealing where if you're playing from, at least for me, who's not in the military to be, well, what is a civilian going to do in this? You know, that makes it even more difficult and challenging and, you know, kind right. of. And you can have a mix of the two together. You can somebody could be a civilian, somebody else could be a military, somebody else could be like a teenager, you know, that has their own set of unique set of skills that they can employ. Cool. Um, and, and that's why I to me, that's why it's my number one pick. It's it's got a lot of appeal for me. I think for a lot of people, it will once it kind of gets back out there. It's just hitting retail shelves, you know, over the last couple of weeks just before the holidays. So. Fantastic. Um, I think we'll see a lot more of it in uh, the first quarter of 22. So, Well, Keith, would you like to bring it all in and, you know, kind of see uh, as we conclude part one of yeah. our podcast? <laughs> yeah. So um, no apologies for being a little long winded today. We kind of warned you that uh, we were going to do our countdown, our top three. So uh, we, we took our time and went through this. Uh, hope we made a couple of good cases on on our games uh, that we found enjoyable this year. So not only have we gone over what was our top three favorites um, or recommendations or both for 2021, but what do we have coming in part two, Keith? Uh, in part two, we are going to talk about our most anticipated games of 2022. We'll each throw out three of our uh, three of our favorites that we're looking forward to. We're going to roundtable it, so it'll be a little bit quicker and hopefully not quite as long-winded. Well, thank you. This 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 concludes part one of our year in podcast. Uh, I, I want to thank uh, both Pookie and Bud uh, for for joining joining uh, us in this, and looking forward to having you both back again for part two and hearing what you guys are looking forward to coming next year. Anything you'd like to... What, what's up? Well, there, the well yeah, we, 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 we discussed this. I mean, can you not make it, Pookie? Because if, if you can't, we can find someone else. Um, you can just pay me double. <laughs> uh, Keith, pay, payment? Hold on a minute. Um, oh. You mean you didn't negotiate payments? <laughs> Shit. Was that what I signed? <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that off, off camera. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, any anything, uh, Pookie or Bud, you'd like to add before we wrap up uh, part one here? Uh, simply, mm -hmm. uh, thanks for uh, having us on. Yep. Um, this is and like we will, it's a lot less sweary than I thought it would be. Well, well, I'm fucking sorry, Bud, but we'll try harder in part two. <laughs> um, so, as as with all things, we're going to try our best to include uh, all the games mentioned here and how to get them uh, within the within the notes of the uh, the podcast. So definitely look for those there. And um, anything else that we that we spoke about that we feel needs to be referenced will also be put into the notes. So that is great, Keith. How about you All right. take us out? All right. Till next time, uh, we will see you on the next episode. So till then, happy gaming. Happy gaming. Y you guys can say that too. I don't want to. Only. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On behalf of myself and Bud. No, I hope you have really bad games. Fantastic. <laughs>